Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the investigation into the death of Joseph Wooten. Was it an accident or was it a murder? As although his peculiar death was resolved in a court of law and the culprit was caught. The question which stumped the police wasn't how did he die, but why. Murder Marley's research used in the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 130, The Falling Man. Today, I'm standing in Wild Court, WC2. One road north of the brutal baker Alexander Moyer. One road south of the first date killer's home. One road west of where Marianne Moriarty dispatched her boozy bow. And a short walk south from the strange case of Annie Polk. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Squirreled away from the hectic bustle of Covent Garden Market and squeezed amidst the forgotten grey gloom of Wild Street, Kemble Street and Kingsway, sits Wild Court. A thin dark alley snuck between the backs of the Freemasons Hall and City Lit, like a cruel afterthought by the town's planners. Being barely ten feet wide, and with only a crack of sky peeping through the concrete monsters above, Wild Court is so depressing that the rats can't be arsed, the fleas have resigned, any wee-wee stains have whittled away, and even Covid is claiming sick pay. With an entrance on Little Wild Street, Wild Court was the back of the Sardinia buildings. A gigantic lodging house, five stories high, half a block wide, and crammed full of 150 little rooms for the city's poorest. As a dark and squalid hellhole for only the most desperate, Fights were frequent, screams were common, and drinking to dull the pain of their pitiful little lives 
violent assaults were a fact of life. But when a half-naked man was found slumped in the alley below, with cracked ribs, a broken back, deep cuts, and rough scuffs to his knees, hands, and feet, it was clear to the police that he had slipped, struggled, and plummeted to his death. And yet the real question was why did he have to die? As it was here, on the night of Friday the 3rd of March, 1889, that Joseph Wooten fell to his death. But was this an accident, a murder, a mistake, or an odd little friendship taken too far? The mystery of the falling man began with very little mystery. Friday the 3rd of March 1889, at roughly 12.30am, residents of the Sardinia building at 19-21 Little Wild Street reported the sounds of shouting in the vicinity of Wild Court. The investigation was headed up by myself, Police Inspector William Crossman of Bow Street Police Station. Constable Francis Sale and Constable Frederick Whittle were first on the scene. They met Mr Andrew Hutton, Deputy Manager of the Lodging House, and were brought to the rear of the building, a small back alley known as Wild Court. It was unlit, dirty and unoccupied. Initially, it looked like a false lead. It's too dark to see anything, but the shifting shadows Without a nightlight, Wild Court was desolate. There was no man to be seen, nor incident to be sensed. All the PCs could hear was a cascade of opening windows and the rhubarb of idle chatter echoing above as a long line of eager fingers pointed down into the filthy hole below. Surrounded by iron railings, too thick to bend, and too tall to climb, the PC spied a flash of white, slumped on a dark jagged bed of broken bricks and rubbish. Accessed only by a key, there was no way to enter this recess except from above. PC Sale stated, On or about 12.45am, I saw a man lying where the occupants dumped their waste. There was a great deal of blood pouring from his mouth, back and legs. He was alive, but only just, and he could not speak. Mugging was ruled out, as if he had been attacked in the alley. Why would anyone waste time lugging a 15-stone man over 10 feet of railings to hide him on top of a bin? Burglary was discounted, as only an idiot would scale a few flights of brick wall to enter a building when the stairs were nearby. It may have been an accident, but no one knew where he had fallen from. Suicide looked unlikely, and being a stranger, he had no reason to be there. But most baffling of all were his clothes. All he had on about his person was his shirt, nothing else. A white shirt ripped from his left armpit to the waist, and a few feet away was a pair of black trousers. 
Although PC Sale would later state, I cannot say if they were there when I first saw the map. His lack of any underwear wasn't seen as suspicious, as this was an era before underpants were commonplace among the masses. But still, what was he doing there, given that he was basically naked? At a little before 1am, Dr. Percy Levick, police surgeon, escorted the unidentified man to King's College Hospital. And although he was insensible, 52-year-old Joseph Wooden of 13 Little George Street, Marleyburg, was able to impart his details to me, but very little else. He died at 7.45am. The autopsy would prove what the police had suspected. With his breath reeking of drink, his liver full, and scratches to his knuckles. A drunken fight had occurred before the fall. With rough cuts scraping upwards on his chest and long slashes from the underside of his biceps to the very tips of his fingers. In staggered sections, he had fought to retain his grip on a windowsill, but inch by inch, he had lost. Struggling to clamber back inside the building, his bare feet had several layers of skin grated away by the wall's rough bricks. The red raw flesh of his heels had been peeled back and folded upwards. Two toenails had been ripped out by the root, and the skin of his big toe was entirely degloved. Based on his injuries, he had fallen 40 to 50 feet, roughly four stories and although his sovereign-sized wound had resulted in a skull fracture, blood loss, and unconsciousness, this was not the cause of his death. Having landed in a seated position and hit the bricks hard with a dead stop, the jagged bed of rubble had pierced his buttocks and thighs as the bulk of his body slammed down upon it. So in a swift, fast smack, Six ribs had snapped, one of which had skewered his right lung. But even that hadn't killed him. With all of the fall's energy focused on a single spot, slamming down hard, it shattered his twelfth dorsal vertebrae, crushed his spine, ruptured his spinal cord, and exploded sharp fragments of bone out of his broken back leaving him paralysed from the chest down and hemorrhaging internally. Even if they could have saved him, which they couldn't, the second his body had hit the bricks, his life was over. But before the autopsy had taken place, the investigation had proven to be relatively straightforward. Upon arrival, officers questioned the neighbours. Mrs Elizabeth Bowman of Room 85, on the fourth floor overlooking Wild Court, stated, At 11pm, we heard two men quarrelling. I heard one call the other a bastard. Other witnesses corroborated this, 
and Mrs. Ruth Searle of Three Sardinia Place said, From my kitchen, I heard two men yelling. It was coming from room 84. Within minutes, the investigation had identified a time and a place for the moments leading up to the death of Joseph Wooden, all of which pointed to a logical conclusion. Two drunken men had a fight. Just shy of 12.30am, Mrs Caroline Frude of room 79, across the corridor from room 84, heard what she described as shouting from inside the room. I opened my door and heard a man cry out, I am bested. I then heard a sort of pained cry of despair. Shortly after, Annie and Thomas Rich of room 32, three floors below, heard shouting, then a great thud. I got my lamp, looked down, and saw a man lying in the basement. He was vomiting and covered in blood. With everyone pointing to room 84 as the fight's point of origin, a room four stories high, with a window that overlooked a wild court and the basement below. Even though the falling man had no reason to be there, behind that locked door lay either a key witness or a potential perpetrator. But who was the occupant? What happened that night? And why did he want this man dead? Given the era, there was nothing particularly remarkable about Joseph Wooten. Joe was born in 1847 in the parish of St Giles, in or near Covent Garden. Described as a general dealer, he sold whatever sold to feed his family. He had five children with his first wife, Joseph, Helen, Maria, Henry and William. But being widowed, he remarried Emily, a woman half his age, and together they had a one-month-old son called Charles, and at the time of his death, she was expecting their seventh. With money tight, all nine shared a small bed in a single room at 13 Little George Street in Marylebone. As a 52-year-old man, who was short and squat, but powerfully built, Joe's age was against him, as he could no longer cart the goods about as quick as the younger fellas. The couple had no savings, no home of their own, and what little money they had left, he would squander on drink. In court, his widow Emily would state these three facts. My husband is addicted to drink. I am aware of Michael Joseph Holland, and I know of no reason why he should be sleeping at the Sardinia buildings. But he was. As for Michael Joseph Holland, the two seemed like kindred spirits. Born in 1867, 32-year-old Michael was a Covent Garden porter with a wife called Anne, a two-year-old son called Thomas, and a one-year-old daughter also called Anne. Likewise, he went where the work was. His family lived in a crowded lodging in Lambeth. He had a few convictions for drinking and fighting, and he squandered their savings. 
But for whatever reason, whether work or a marital split, he had rented a lodging at room 84 of the Sardinia buildings. The two men were old pals, similar in so many ways, who had no debts, rivalry or jealousy together. Thursday the 2nd of March 1899 began as a very ordinary day. The deceased wife, Emily Wood, stated he left home about midday and did not return, which was not uncommon. He finished his work in the fruit market about 7pm, therefore these timings are based on the sightings by potmen and publicans. Alfred Ashwell of the Great Public House at 42 Sardinia Street served both the prisoner, Michael Holland, and the deceased, Joseph Wooden, between the hours of 7pm and 9pm. Being a hot-headed pair, they often drank to excess and engaged in fisticuffs. But such incidents were always resolved with neither man holding the grudge. At 9pm, a news lad called Laurie Donovan saw both at the heart on Jewelry Lane, stating both were on good terms. At 10.30pm, both returned to the grapes, had two glasses of ale and a penny's worth of tobacco. They left at 10.45pm and both were very drunk. But again, they left together as good pals. Just shy of 11pm, they entered the Sardinia buildings on Little Wild Street, where for the two weeks prior, Michael had rented a room. 90 minutes later, his half-naked body would be found on a jagged pile of bricks, with his limbs ripped and his back broken. Witnesses corroborate that an argument began just after 11pm. Mrs Bowman in room 85 said, I didn't think much of it. It was very slight. One called the other a bastard. Mrs Searle in the window opposite heard loud voices at 12pm but couldn't make out a word. Mrs Froude across the corridor heard the cry, I am bested, from inside room 84. And Mr and Mrs Rich in 32 heard a thud, then saw a body in the basement. Illuminating the thin alley with his lantern, P.C. Whittle searched the length of Wild Court. But he found nothing. No weapons, no money, and no clothes. Just a smashed semi-clad man in a ripped white shirt. My officers searched from top to bottom. I went to the roof to check if he had jumped off, but the door was firmly locked, as was the basement. Immediately above the spot where the deceased was found, the prisoner's window was lighted, and corroborated by witnesses, that brought myself to room 84. First to approach the sturdy wooden door of room 84 were PCs Frederick Whittle and Francis Sale. They knocked, but got no reply. They knocked again, but again, nothing. So having knocked hard, a gruff voice barked, 
Who is it? Whittle replied, Police, open up. At which the prisoner replied, Fuck you. It was only when the officer threatened to force the door that it was opened. Which begs the question, with his old pal Joseph smashed and dying four stories below, why was Michael so reluctant to help? Before the PCs stood Michael Holland, five foot seven inches tall, 32 years old and well built. Just like Joseph, he was naked except for a white shirt, and his knuckles were scuffed with old blood and new. From the door, the PCs engaged the prisoner in the following conversation. A man's been found in the alley without any clothes. I know nothing about him. Have you seen a strange man or any clothes lying about? No. These are my trousers if you want to see them. At which he jabbed his finger at a jacket, waistcoat, trousers, socks and boots, all piled on the chair, which were black and dirty. The prisoner was then asked, Who lives here with you? He replied, No, there's no bastard living here, only me. The room was small, the bed was unmade, the light was on, and the window was open. With no evidence to link Joseph Wooden to Michael Holland, or the argument in room 84, the PCs continued to search the building and reported their findings to Inspector William Crossman. The officers and myself examined by lantern light the water closets and sinks. There is one on each floor and half landing, but we found nothing in any of them. But while the officers were occupied, Michael was engaged in skullduggery. At about the same time, James Hewitt, a portmanteau maker who lived in room 19, saw Michael stagger unsteadily down the stairs between the third and fourth floors. I said, what are you doing here in only your shirt? If those are your trousers under your arm, why don't you put them on? Otherwise you'll have all the women out and then there'll be a fine to do. But the prisoner gave no reply and staggered away, with the dirty bundle looking much larger than a pair of trousers. Moments later, 14-year-old William, son of Elizabeth Bowman, saw Michael return to his room, minus the large bundle. The officers were informed, and a second search of the water closets were conducted. This time, behind a third-floor sink, they found a set of threadbare socks and some scuffed black boots. On a landing, behind a toilet door, which earlier had opened with ease but now seemed to be stuck, they spied a waistcoat and a black jacket. And four stories below, slumped in a crumpled heap, beside the bloodied and barely breathing body, lay a pair of black trousers. Although PC Sale would later state, I cannot say whether they were there when I first saw the man. Which begs even more questions. Why hide the clothes? And why deny that Joseph was there? No one had seen either man in the room, so an alibi of an accident or self-defense could never be disproved. 
At 4.30 a.m., Inspector Crossman knocked on the door of room 84. Being sleepy, but still a little worse for wear, Michael let the police inspector in. I stated to the prisoner that a man named Joseph Wooden had been found on the brick rubbish below his window. When asked to explain why, again he repeated that he knew nothing about the man or the incident. The evidence that a fight of some description had taken place was relatively clear. Across the rough hairy knuckles of Michael's right hand lay a series of welts and cuts from a fist fight he claimed had occurred two weeks earlier. And although he would repeatedly lie, his body wouldn't. So with the skin still swelling and the bruises still new, this particular fight was barely a few hours old. Likewise, a scratch on his forehead had struggled to heal. As every time his brow had furrowed, the skin had crinkled and ripped the slim red gash wider, sending a tiny drop of blood oozing from this fresh cut. And with stains spattering his shirt sleeve and the bed marked with a red pool, which the inspector stated was sticky, when I made the prisoner aware that the blood on the sheet was damp, he gave no reply. Again, he denied a fight had been fought, that another man had slept in his bed. He shrugged off any knowledge of his friend, and he refuted any claim that the clothes were Joseph's. Even though, of the two low-crowned hats discovered in his room, one fitted his head perfectly, but the other did not. The cramped room was simple. It had a small bed, two wooden chairs, a window and a door. On inspection, the door was undamaged, but by the window, it was clear that a struggle had taken place. Beside the bed, a picture frame lay face down on the floor, its glass smashed. The curtain's drawstring had snapped, as a weight had yanked the right curtain off its rail, leaving the left one trapped outside of the recently closed window. I raised the sash. In the dust were fresh finger marks on the woodwork, which scraped outwards and down along the stone. A stain ran along the centre of the sill, as if a heavy weight of flesh had been dragged over it. And on the outside wall, three feet below the sill, were bloodied scratches on the brickwork, as if a barefooted man had struggled to hold on. A measurement proved, as the pathologist had stated, that Joseph would have fallen 40 to 50 feet to sustain the injuries he did. Directly below Michael's window was the basement where he landed, and from the sill to the bricks, the distance was exactly 41 feet. I drew the prisoner's attention towards the basement and the bloody footmarks, but he gave no reply. In fact, he became quite sullen. Which begs another question. What was the argument about? And why didn't Michael try to save his friend? At 6am, Joseph's wife, Emily Wooden, was brought to the Sardinia buildings, where she identified the jacket, waistcoat, trousers, socks and boots, and even the hat that Michael had said was his, 
as that of her husband's. Michael Holland was taken to the Bow Street police station, where he stated, I don't know anything about it all. I was drunk at the time. But having died of his injuries at 7.45am, Michael was subsequently charged with his murder. An inquest into the murder of Joseph Wooden took place on the 13th of March, 1899. And after a committal hearing at Bow Street, he was tried at the Old Bailey on the 10th of April. The prosecution argued that Michael had pushed Joseph out of the window and left him dangling. But being too exhausted to hold his grip, he fell. But the defence denied this, arguing that the evidence was purely circumstantial. And more importantly, there was no motive for the murder. Michael pleaded not guilty, but refused to provide any witnesses or evidence to prove this, which put Mr. Justice Grantham in a quandary. He stated, The evidence is entirely circumstantial, but the prisoner has not assisted the jury by giving any reason for the disturbance. He has told lie after lie from the moment the police arrived right across the investigation and until he was arrested. But even when he was asked if he had anything further to say, Michael simply barked, No, in a loud, gruff voice. The jury retired for just 30 minutes and having returned with a unanimous verdict of guilty, Michael Joseph Holland was sentenced to death. One hour before his execution, his sentence was reduced to life. But even up to that very moment, as death was being dangled, he remained totally silent about what had happened that night in room 84. But why? Why lie about the fight? Why hide his clothes? Why deny that his friend was there? And why? After 15 years side by side, did he choose to watch Joseph die rather than save his life? It's a deadly secret that both men would take to their graves. So the mystery of the falling man will never be solved. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed that, stay tuned for tea slurping and utter waffle after the break. It's not essential, so if you don't like pointless rambling, switch off now. But before that, here's a true crime podcast which may very well be the icing on an iced bun. Mmm. Hi, I'm Cambo, the host of True Crime Island podcast and now YouTube channel. Do you get angry when you listen to true crime? Well, so do I. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair and tune in to True Crime Island and maintain the rage with me as I say what you're thinking. Search for True Crime Island on your favourite audio podcatcher and now with added video goodness on the True Crime Island YouTube channel. Boomfuckalunga. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Aaron French, 
Ray Kennedy. I thank you both. I hope you're enjoying your new and exclusive Murder Mile goodies. And a thank you to Amy Graham, Anne-Marie Cummings, Kim Carlf and Leah Hawkins, who sent very kind donations via the Murder Mile eShop, which will be spent not on Eva's rather lethal cocktail collection, but on cake for me. So I thank you. Plus a thank you to everyone who has shared this podcast with their friends. Murder Mile was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fuck's sake. Oh, I felt like about eight hours. Christ. Oh, that was a horrible one to record. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to need to stand up. That was really painful. Ow. Hey, folks. Welcome to Extra Mildly. Uh, unedited extra bit at the end of the show. Sorry, I'm move. Ow. Oh. I'm going to open some windows now. I need air now. I need. Oh, that was really horrible. Whether they've got no air or whatever. I just. Oh. Oh, whether I was sitting on a vein or something in my ass or something. Oh, God. My heart kept going, going all weird and couldn't get my breath. That was really difficult, that was. Oh. And then, because of where I am, pricks 
little posh pricks in their little posh little shitty planes having to fly around and when you look at your your little i look at my little flight recorder map to see where all these planes are and you see they're not going anywhere they're just going in circles because they're little posh pricks and they're like i'm gonna get in my little posh little shitty plane and have a little fly around just so i can go oh look there's my house oh dear what this i bet if i look at my heart monitor it's fine i bet it's saying i bet it's saying it's saying no no it's fine your heart is uh doing 62 beats a minute everything is fine here we go 85 now you're gonna jump or you're not gonna jump see down to 68 it's all over the shop oh dear maybe i'm just having one of those days anyway right i'm gonna i'm gonna put on uh, some tea uh you're welcome to join me i don't I was going to have a coffee. I don't think I should have a coffee after that moment. Going to open up a... Oh dear. Oh, has that set me off for a grumbly day? I reckon so. Just going to open the window. There we go. Oh, fresh air. That's nice. Right. Uh... And yes, it's early and my neighbour decided to put his engine on. Oh, so I'm going to have to edit out the sounds of his engine, which is very annoying. What we got right? Teabag in. Oh dear, heart is really going ten to the dozen at the moment. Maybe I just had a bad sleep. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Right, come on, let's get back and let's get back into business. Uh, God, maybe maybe it's because I don't have a cake. I've got a cake. Haven't got a cake. Went into the cake shop yesterday. There wasn't anything nice. Didn't pick up a cake. Didn't even pick up Old Faithful. Old Faithful uh, bake or tart? What is my favourite? A Belgian bun. I'm all over the shop today. It's because it's meant to be, meant to be that this Friday I get my vaccine. Except this morning, so it's Wednesday today, two days before the vaccine. I've had it booked in for weeks. Message through this morning. Uh, your first one's cancelled and your second one's cancelled as well. No no reason why they've just cancelled both, which is very freaking annoying. Because I've been racing ahead to get myself ahead of the game, so I've got enough time to kind of do murder mile, do, get the vaccine, and if I get ill, that's not a problem at all. Oh, so, and they've cancelled it for no reason. Literally, it's just said, we've cancelled it. Why? I don't know. I'll have to call my doctors in a bit and find out, see if they know anything. Very annoying. Uh, what else? What else is going on? Good news. I found lovely places to walk. Uh, the, the place where I am at the moment, I can't tell you where I am. It's very nice. Uh, but the, the problem is because it's all nice and sunny, a lot of people have been out having little walks along the canal. And it's 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 annoying, you know, now because you, you, can, you can have two families together. So people seem to be walking in groups of 15 or whatever, some shit. And like clogging up the 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 towpath, and the towpaths are really narrow, so you can't walk past each each other. You've got to make a bit of space. So I do that, and I spend half of my time waiting for people. And they, and even worse, they don't even say thank you. That that annoys me the most. Where they just they just expect you to move out of their way. Oh, I've got kids. You can move out of my way. Oh, I'm on a bike. Bing bing, move out of my way, bastards. Oh, am I in a bad mood today? I'm not in a foul mood, but I'm in, not in a great mood. Uh, but. So what I did was I found, uh, like, uh, on the places I was walking, I was like, oh, do you know, sometimes it's not a path, but sometimes you see, I think uh, cartographers refer to it as desire lines, which is kind of uh, an area where people like to walk and the area has been trodden, but it's not an official path. 
So I started taking these um, lovely little paths off, off the route. And, oh, it's very lovely. I found some lovely meadows that literally no one is in, some old rivers. I uh, found some old old bridges that haven't been used in, like, looks like they haven't been used in, like, 50, 60 years. Uh, yeah, just really nice pieces. And yesterday I found, like, an old, old kind of fishing route with kind of uh, uh, old wooden boards, which looked a bit rickety, and that was all very nice. So I enjoyed that. That was all good fun. Uh, so I might have a little walk later on. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, Murder Mile walks are back on the 26th of Sunday, the 26th of June. So that's all good. So if you've already got uh, vouchers, you can use vouchers. If they've expired, don't worry. Message me. Just say they've expired and I'll, I'll extend them for another year. That's not a problem at all. Uh, so yeah you can book on there's no private tours I'm not doing any private tours for a good long while I, I want to get the regular tours up and running so uh, yeah but if you're interested go to the Murder Mile website and book in there, there, there's tours right up until Christmas which is good uh, kettle is about to boil I'm going to get it before it's boiled because you shouldn't really shouldn't really uh, be doing uh, tea with boiling hot water same with coffee as well it should be should be just just before boiling oh dear that struggled my oh my heart's going dumpity dumpity dump maybe it's Eva maybe Eva is close by maybe that's it maybe I can sense her or maybe it's just it's just exhaustion it's exhaustion from all of Eva's uh, activity let's let's just use that word activity uh, right. Oh dear. I'm feeling really weird. Well, if they have cancelled my vaccine, maybe that's a good thing. And maybe that means I'll take a day off and I'll just lie somewhere and just do as little as possible. Maybe I need it. Right. Uh, let's do the quiz and then we'll, we'll whiz into some extra stuff. So, uh, okay. Um, question number one. What did Joseph do as a job? Ooh. Question two. What did Michael do as a job? Can you remember the jobs and you can remember who did what? Uh, don't forget, of course, this, uh, you know, some of this may get edited out as well. So I uh, like last week, I think there was one to do with wives. What were the wives, wives names or something? I edited that out. So uh, that's fine. Uh, question three. Uh, which other murder mile? Oh, that was really stupid. Okay, I'm going to have to re-edit this question in my head. Okay, question number three. Which other Murder Mile murderer did the same job as Michael at around the same time in the same place? Poor. I had to re-edit that because I just realised I gave away the answer to question two in three. Right. Question four. God, this is getting difficult. Which is it's because I was, I was desperate to try and get this finished on time to save a day to make space for the fucking vaccine oh do the worst thing as well i've just been on they they said they they sent me a thing saying you can go on the website and and book in uh, to get a new one but i can't because they've lost my details i moved i moved addresses from my doctors and my doctors updated the details and it looks like i'm in the transitional period between the doctor updating the details and the nhs receiving it so i can't do anything really annoying uh question 4 which two pubs did they visit that night? The two men. So uh, Joseph and Michael, which two pubs did they visit that night? Uh, 
Question five. The back entrance of the Sardinia buildings uh, is on Wild Court. But where were, but where was the front entrance? What? Heart is going weird. Uh, question six. Name both men's wives. There's that question again, but will I edit it out this week? Maybe. Who knows? Uh, question seven. How long did the jury at the trial retire for? Question eight. This one's a really hard one. Uh, name the police surgeon who performed the autopsy. Question nine. Uh, what did Michael and Joseph buy in the last pub? Oh, remember going to pubs. Uh, question ten. Which vertebrae was shattered? Right, there's that. Right, let's see what I'm doing with the... Uh, what I thought I'd do, because I've pretty much put everything that's in the, the police file pretty much in this episode. There's nothing that I've really left out. So what I thought I might do, I'm going to put a pillow behind my back. There we go. Uh, I'm going to uh, try and go through some... Let's go through some theories, some ideas. Let's ask some questions. Because you may come away from this episode going, oh, where was, where was the real mystery in that one? Because normally what I'll do is I'll kind of set things up and then answer the questions, and then you come away going, oh. But with this one, because there's no real answer, I decided not to answer. I decided to fill it full of questions, but answer no answer none of the answers because there are no answers in there at all neither of them said obviously joseph is dead and michael kind of almost went to his uh execution uh saying nothing about it so um it's weird it, it's you know what what really was going on so uh, did he throw his mate out the window or was it an accident was it some kind of tomfoolery going on were they having a play fight did one of them slip if not, why did he not try and save his mate? If he was really angry at his mate, why did he push him and then not try to save him? Do you know, as we've seen with the police, uh, that the, the, the police had said that they, they, they were the type of people who had fights all the time. Do you know, the kind of pricks who kind of go to a pub and have a couple of pints and they're unable to make it through like three or four pints without getting aggressive with each other. And, oh, I've got to have a fight. I'm in a pub. I'm having a fight. You know, those kind of dickheads. That's who they are. So they both had they both had records for kind of uh, drunken, disorderly behaviour. So, um, you know... They, they're not exactly the, the the sharpest tools in the box. But, as the police always said, you know, they were the kind of people who would have a fight, but there would be no animosity about it. You know, pretty much that night, they would sort it out. They'd have a bit of fight, they'd vent their feelings, then they'd be like, oh, let's have a pint, let's have a pint to kind of, uh, you know, oh, we're mates again, uh, I love you, mate, I love you. All that kind of shit. So, um, yeah. Um, uh, why Why were they sharing a bed together? Uh, here's a question. If you think about it, um, Michael was living in Lambeth with his wife. Uh, so that's a bit of a trek. You can probably understand, uh, couldn't really understand that, but you, you know what? It's not too far away. He could have got in a cab. Maybe this was a work thing. As mentioned, maybe they'd had a bit of a falling out. But why was Joseph staying there? He only lived in Marlebone, which wasn't too far away. 
But then again, he did have a family with... There was nine of them there in one room and one bed. So, you know, maybe he was working local as he was in Covent Garden the next morning. So maybe it's easier just to share a bed with his mate. Uh it's uh it's a hard one do you know maybe he didn't want to go home because if you've got a bed full of you know nine people including seven children two of whom are under the age of one are you going to get any peace probably not it'd probably be easier to share a bed with kind of your mate who's uh drunken and undressed than uh share a bed with seven children uh there was no real mystery over uh why they were both semi-dressed you know they were both kind of wearing their shirts to bed that was kind of a normal thing you know you kind of most people really wouldn't have pajamas pajamas were a bit, a bit of a posh thing uh underpants really weren't much of a thing until that they were kind of popularized in the 1930s especially amongst the masses uh so- socks had only really become a, a regular item in kind of the the 19th century except you know in very cold places or during winter so uh yeah so the reason why he wasn't wearing under underwear not really a, a kind of a major issue there uh or maybe it was uh what does i am bested mean exactly it's you know that that means i have been defeated but why say that what does he mean by that is that actually what the neighbors heard um we don't know um uh what else was there why, why was michael uh, renting a lodging two weeks prior now apparently according to the details this had been rented by his brother george for him but george never attended the trial so we don't know why george rented the lodging there for him so he had a lodging there but he also lived at home uh with his wife in lambeth but we don't know why uh why as mentioned before do you know they would fight a lot but why how did it get to the point where it escalated to such a point where where he would watch his friend die do you know michael clearly joseph was holding holding on to the sill he'd been pushed over he was holding on to the sill he's trying to get his grip his feet were clawing into the brick wall as were his hands and then he slipped so it would have taken a couple of seconds but why if they'd been friends 15 years as they said and you know everyone said they were on good terms but they were very drunk that night but then again they were always drunk why do you know what what was the spark that was the difference between him punching his mate's head in as you know they often had fights and they often had bruises punching each other's heads in in the street and swearing at each other and all stuff stuff like that to wanting to see him dead what what happened this is this is the problem is that no one can hear what had actually happened in that room um uh another reason uh at the trial as well michael michael gave no alibi for any of this and if you consider the fact that the room was locked no one could see either men in the room and no one really heard what they were saying he could easily have had an alibi for self-defense or accident or anything like that so you know it's it's it doesn't make sense why he wouldn't defend himself i know as you know if if it uh defense counsel can say um you don't have to give evidence and you don't have to put any witnesses forward because it's the um it's up to the prosecution to put that forward and actually if you're if you're not particularly good you can you can defend yourself but make it worse for yourself by just opening your mouth which is why quite often people just say just say nothing 
you know, especially if you're a bit of a moron, just say nothing. It's easier to say nothing than to than to go on. You know, he seems like quite an arrogant and quite an angry man. So if he were to go to court and, you know, he's already lied his way through. He will get angry. He'll make mistakes. He'll trip himself up. So probably this was a better defence for his team just to say, you know, don't don't say a th- single word because you're just going to cock it up. Uh, the judge agreed that the evidence was purely circumstantial. So, uh, but they still had to go forward. Uh, they still had to go forward and, and you know decide whether he was guilty or not guilty. Um, obviously, the two men knew each other, but there seems to be a big difference in age as well. One of them is thirty-two; the other one is fifty-two. Uh, whether that's something, I don't know. Uh, I'm just throwing this out there. Uh, um, why did Michael not? Uh, want to cooperate with the police he wouldn't answer the door he wouldn't let them in uh you know he lied pretty much about everything so what was going on there what was he trying to hide or was this just did he just have a hatred of the police you know the police turned up and like a lot of idiots goes arms folded refused to cooperate oh you're the police you solve it you know those kind of bellends so um you know, maybe that maybe that's him. Maybe he was just this kind of single-minded, kind of stuck in his ways kind of guy. He sees the police, he refuses to help. Maybe that's it. Uh, it just—it's weird, isn't it? I've I've kind of looked through some p- possible ideas, but I don't know. I don't know whether they're even right or wrong. Uh, so this is the kind of era. It's you know, uh, end of Queen Victoria's reign. It's the last two years before her death. Um. Here's just an idea. I don't even know if it's right or wrong. So, homosexuality. Let's just assume. Let's just assume that the two men were maybe gay, hiding it from their wives. Maybe. I'm not saying that they were. I'm just saying that maybe. Okay, so homosexuality was only decriminalised in 1967. Um, uh, And prior to this so uh you could still be executed for homosexuality although uh, prior to 1964 you normally got two years in prison for inverted commas gross indecency so uh 1533 uh, henry the passed the buggery act which made all male sexual activity punishable by death uh this law pretty much remained in place uh it was renewed as the offenses against the person act of 1828 with buggery still punishable by death, but execution was becoming less and less. Uh, 1835, James Pratt and John Smith were the last two men hanged for homosexuality in England. Um, they were actually having sex in a private room, but someone spied upon them. Therefore, it became, um, you know, they, they were hanged because someone was being a bit of a pervert. Um, 1861, the death penalty for buggery was abolished. Uh, 1866, marriage was first defined as between a man and a woman. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Though it's only 1866. Ooh, I thought that was meant to be a year. It's millenniums ago. No. Uh, uh, 1889, the uh, Cleveland Street scandal happened. That's pretty much a local one. Uh, 1895, Oscar Wilde was tried for gross indecency and served two years hard labour. So this is around that era. Um, so... If they were 
just because they're sleeping together in a bed neither of them are kind of wearing underpants which we've kind of explained we're kind of explaining why they're wearing the clothes that they are wearing maybe they were just two friends sharing a bed together we've all done that we've all shared kind of a bed with mates before not really a problem especially if you've had a couple of beers as well not really a problem but what i'm trying to get out here is why if He'd just had a bit of a fight with his mate behind closed doors. No one had seen it and an accident happened. He could have said accident happened. Not really a problem. But some, but something is clearly being hidden here. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of really what is it about. Uh, so I really don't know. Um, uh, February the 18th. So this was a couple of weeks before in Covent Garden Market. A police constable. Police constable not Arsenal Guinness, Police Constable Charles Oldersley. Uh, he was on duty. Uh, he knew Michael Holland, and he also knew Lawrence Donovan, who I've mentioned in here, who was the newspaper lad. Uh, he saw Michael Holland and Donovan fighting outside a pub called The Constitution, uh, which is a different one. Uh, they had a fight that night. Uh, this was where the marks on Lawrence's fists and face originally came from the old ones the ones that he said um that uh they had a fight at they also he uh michael Don, uh, michael holland had another fight on february the 25th so this was one week before as well uh and again he'd been drinking pretty heavily so this this seems to be a regular thing that he seems to do a lot um in court emily wooden said uh, of her husband joseph uh, that he was addicted to drink. She had heard him speak of Michael Holland, but I cannot say if there was any ill will between them. From everyone who seems to have uh, spoken to them and of them, said, you know, that was pretty much them. They drank a lot, they fought a lot, but there didn't seem to be a real problem between them. There was no debts between them. There was no kind of jealousy. It was just kind of, you know, they would have a fight. They'd make up for it afterwards. Uh what else have we got let's i'm just i'm just whizzing through some of my notes at the moment just to see what there is uh and and also try not to give away too much from the the quiz question which uh is already in there so let's have a look um yeah so the flat flat 84 uh it was kind of uh three series of buildings together that was the sardinia building so that was kind of uh blocked together this this prop this building was actually called wild house uh, it took it i have to say it took bloody ages to find it because it's uh it's one of those things that's just not listed I, and also the street names and the places changed and you know uh, the kingsway tram line was kind of uh big swathes of kind of uh london was demolished to make way for the tram line which is still technically there today if you if you go through Hol Holborn uh, and you go to Kingsway, you can still see that the, the tramway lines are still on the floor and you can see the kind of the the, uh, the tramway stations as well. They're still there. Uh, what else? I'm not going to say about what they did prior because that's all pub related. It, when you talk to everyone who was in the pub, <coughs> they just said, yeah, just up to their regular stuff. Nothing much was really going on. Um Elizabeth Bowman, she was in the room right next door to them. Uh, she was the one who said, I heard two men quarrelling. It was very slight at the start, she said. I thought nothing of it. Uh, both were men's voices. One of them called the other a bastard. Ooh. In the court documents, they, they've erased the word bastard. So it just says B star 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 D. 
Yeah, and then and then he says bugger later on, and they have to they have to delete that as well. But originally, at about eleven o'clock, it, she really wasn't thinking that much of it. And and given the location of where they were, they said that do you know what fighting was a common thing. If you think about it, you've got one hundred and fifty rooms. There's a lot of people working there. A lot a lot of people living there. A lot of people working there. A lot of people who are tired, not on much money, really struggling, trying to get some sleep. Do you know things are going to be. Uh, Things are going to be pretty uh, hard. It's going to be hard. Oh dear, my heart just did about four skips. Little bastard. Maybe that's it. Maybe it needs cake. Oh, I might have to go to Wenzel's in a bit. I'm going to, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to go to Wenzel's. I'm going to go to Wenzel's. I'm going to pick up one of their nice uh, sandwiches. I'm going to pick up a, a diet coke, which probably won't be good for me. And I'm going to pick up some. Uh, oh, they do a, a, a special where you get you get a donut and a sandwich and a drink which is great, and then I can get a Belgian bun as well. Let me just whiz through these. The area where the body was found was pretty weird. It took me a while to work this out, because if you go into the alley, on the left-hand side is the building where the Sardinia buildings was, but there was a... Um, I hope I've described it properly in there, but it's it's kind of like there's... To the side of the building, there's kind of a sub... It, it goes into a basement, so... Um, there's railings that go up that stop if you're on the alley it stops you falling down into the uh basement because the basement the, the kind of isn't really a, 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 a there's a gap but there's nothing to stop you so they've put big railings up which are about 10 feet high so basically he was he fell down into a gap that probably wasn't that wide it was probably only about about a meter maybe two meters wide but down there that under there was that that was where all the rubbish was stored so he cut so i guess he was kind of lucky if he would have fell on the railings core dear that would have been some serious damage there's a horrible picture i saw years ago of this of this uh of this guy who was uh running away from the police because all, all people who are innocent run away from the police obviously uh he was running away from the police he, he jumped off a wall he slipped and uh, in front of him was some railings with spikes on, and he uh, he landed on the railings, but he didn't land on the railings on his using his body or his hands. He landed on the railings uh, right underneath his jaw, and his uh, his entire head came off. Horrible, horrible. Those were back in the days where uh, the early days of internet, where everyone used to go, "Oh, have you seen Gorezone?" And I go, "No, but I will do." And now it's stuck in my head forever, never, ever, ever. I, th- I don't think Gorezone exists anymore, but it was horrific. Once you once you once you've seen Gorezone, it's like ugh. There used to be these idiots who used to go uh, what they call lift surfing, which is where you climb on top of a lift and uh, you you ride the lifts up and down. But the problem is the little pricks who do that uh, forget that there's a counterweight because the the counterweight has to be heavier than the lift and the people inside, so it raises the lift up when the brakes are released. That's how it goes up and down. But uh, if you're on top of the lift there's nothing to really stop you uh there's there's nothing between you and the counterweight except your own body so if you you're too far over and it comes down cool lummy that's like if you imagine the weight of a lift plus 12 people coming down on top of you there's not going to be a lot left horrible horrible uh don't know why those pictures just came back in my head what else have I got? Let, let's go to the execution. Let's whiz to the execution because I did kind of jump over that. Pretty much everything is in in this story, so you're welcome to 
listen to it a couple of times and then and try and see if you can work out what really what is going on uh obviously there's uh, there's blood in the room there's blood stains on the bed uh there's blood stains on their clothes uh one of the pictures was smashed on the wall that was on the floor the curtains were down do you know uh, things were in disarray and it didn't make sense why he tried as i mentioned why he tried to hide the clothes but he didn't tidy up the room do you know the incident happened at twelve thirty. Uh, the inspector, when he'd done all of his rounds and all that, got back to the room, room 84, at 4.30. So that's four hours later. So why didn't he use those four hours to clean up the room? Did he fall asleep? don't know. It doesn't make sense. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's just go to... OK. This cropped up. OK. This was a newspaper article from uh, Friday the 28th of April, 1899. Uh, in the condemned cell was the title murderous sweetheart visits newgate uh at half past 10 this morning no reply had been received from the home secretary with reference to the case of michael joseph holland who now lies in newgate under sentence of death he would he was visited this morning by his former sweetheart uh so that was his wife whose name i won't mention because that's one of the questions well done me uh but it says former sweetheart here so whether that's because he was condemned and about to die or whether they had split by that point which would explain why he was in the uh lodging uh the condemned man has been informed that if if it is not reprieved by tomorrow morning his farewell interview that's a nice little euphemism there um he may uh, uh he may wish see will take place oh which may take place at 11 o'clock holland is getting extremely restless and asking every qu- quarter of an hour if a reply has been received with regard to his petition so he's clearly upset and nervous about this he says he can now realize how foolish he was not to have told the whole truth at the start he feels sure if he had done so the jury would only have returned a verdict against him of manslaughter or I would say maybe even less, less probably assault. He he eats well. He does a great deal of reading and is very attentive to the administrations of the prison chaplain. Uh, but he has hardly a moment's sleep over the last three days. Uh, uh, they say he has uh, fallen asleep many times to the cry of "mummy, mummy." So, even hours like literally it was an hour before he was due to be executed that the the home secretary uh, reprieved him literally an hour before he was still upset he was his uh, former sweetheart was turning up to check him even the even the the uh, uh the the prison chaplain and still he wouldn't say why and even there he wishes that he had told the truth right from the start he said but he didn't so why what is the truth what is going on what happened was it money between them? Was it, or as I said at the start, was it was it a quirk of the friendship that went a little bit too far? Is the reason why Michael and Joseph were falling out, and uh, or, or Michael had moved out, and there was a falling out between them because of the falling out between Michael and his wife? Is that something that's going on? Did did Michael try and chat up his wife, knowing that she was possibly free? Uh, is was there money between them? It doesn't seem to make sense because they were buying each other drinks all night, and even even Michael had left. Apparently, he'd left a crown behind the bar uh, for the barman to give to another friend of his for a drink. So, you know, 
they don't seem to have been broke broke you know they weren't rich but you know they had enough money for drink and you know if they they owe, owe people debts they seem to be paying it off so it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense what is going on here what is um what is the reason to want to because if you think about it you've got to have a big enough reason to want to kill someone although as we've seen in murder mile many times sometimes with people who aren't particularly intelligent let's be honest that the reason for to kill each other seems to be really slim you see that in the papers quite a lot don't you where, where like oh someone's been murdered in east london i don't know why they even bother leaving a message saying someone's been murdered in east london as an article why didn't we just have an article that one day says shock someone not murdered in east london um it's but every time it is you you'd think it'd be over something big and horrible but it isn't it's normally over something like someone looked at someone the wrong way or you know said something or you just think oh it's quite often it's just pricks isn't it i'm sorry it really is and i, I do you know what? maybe this one is as well maybe this one is to do with a look or a phrase or do you know he did call him a bastard maybe of course we don't know who called who a bastard because it was never really said but what is going on we don't know so uh i don't know up to you you're welcome welcome to if you're on the any of the murder Mile forums or on uh instagram or or, or twitter you know put your theories in there if, if you think you know what the answer is why you know the reason for the murder let us know let's let's start a debate um, anyway, let's do the questions. I'm going to have a quick slurp of tea. And then I'm going to call the doctors and say, what the fuck's going on? Um, quiz. Okay. Uh, question one. What did Joseph do as a job? He was a general dealer. That was his job. So he's not a drug dealer. But he's a general dealer is basically someone who will sell anything just to, just to make a sale. So, do you know, sometimes fruit, sometimes crockery whatever uh question two what did michael do as a job this is the question i almost ruined uh he was a porter in covent garden market which brings us to question three which other murder mile murderer was a porter in covent garden market around the same time you can see why i edited that question um so who which other murder mile murderer was a porter in Covent Garden Market around the same time? I think with the question I said I did the same job around the same time. Uh in the same place. That was uh James Hall, who was the baby batterer of Bedfordbury. So literally that was I think I think it was yeah, I think it was either the, the same year or two years out. So they they who knows, they may have known each other. They probably did. Um Question four, which two pubs did they visit that night? It was the Grapes and the Heart. Uh, question five, the back entrance of the Sardinia buildings was on Wild Court, but where was the front entrance? That was on Little Wild Street. Everything about around this was to be Wild Court, Great Wild Street, Wild Street, Little Wild Street, Wild Alley. There's lots of that, but Little Wild Street was uh, has now been called Keeley Street. Almost this uh, this this area is almost unrecognisable from what it was originally. Uh, question six: Name both men's wives. That is uh, Anne and Emily. 
Question seven. How long did the jury retire for? That was 30 minutes. Question eight, which is a hard question. Name the police surgeon who performed the autopsy. That's Dr. Percy Levick. Question nine. What did Michael and Joseph buy in the last pub? That was two glasses of ale and a penny's worth of tobacco. And question 10. Which vertebrae was shattered? It was the 12th dorsal vertebrae. Oh, which is lit- literally the one just before the, the top of the lumbar. So it's kind of it's kind of mid mid lower oh, stretch mid lower back. So all horrible. But yeah, no, that was all smashed, and uh, they were the 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 first lumbar and so uh, and the eleventh vertebrae had, had c- compressed together and smashed that one, and then that had all shattered outside his back. It's amazing he lasted seven hours which he did that must have been painful as well especially with the the lack of anesthetic as well and things like that no wonder he was unconscious good that was that done i'm gonna get this edited hopefully it will turn out well and now i'm gonna call my doctors and go wtf cool that's all good hope you enjoyed that uh, I will be back soon. We'll be back next week. I don't know what next week's episode is because I didn't bother to look at the, my sheet. But I've, I've researched it. I just can't remember which one it was. Cool. Catch you soon. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.